0: This week's episode of The Ownership Economy, we brought on Alyssa Orlando, a co-founder of the Drivers Cooperative, to discuss her experience in helping to build the company from the ground up. We go a bit deeper into Alyssa's motivations and expectations in setting up the cooperative and how things played out over the first 18 months. This episode will be highly relevant for entrepreneurs thinking through the benefits and pitfalls of the cooperative model. It'll also be of interest to policymakers and innovators that are trying to hone in on where the cooperative model is challenging when the goal is to drive large-scale wealth and value creation. We hope you enjoy the episode. Alyssa, welcome. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we like to start things off here by learning a bit more about where you came from, your origin story. So tell us about Alyssa.
1: Yeah. So I grew up in Syracuse, New York, and the daughter of a unionized public school teacher and an independent contractor, real estate appraiser father. And have a little sister who was a personal trainer and then got into physical therapy. So I feel like that informs a lot of my views on labor. And then went to D.C. That was my first time where I was exposed to international relations. And so worked for four years internationally, building different tech companies. And then realized as the African tech ecosystem continued to develop, that I didn't really have a role in it. And I shouldn't really have a role in it. And so move back to the US to focus more so on the labor space. And that's how I got introduced to this idea of cooperatives.
0: Okay, I'm gonna stop there for a minute, because I go to Tangier almost every month, and work with developers there. So why did you think you shouldn't be involved in the African ecosystem?
1: I mean, there was a big debate that was going on about White founders and white leadership within African tech companies. And so I worked in Kigali, Rwanda. I worked in Nairobi, Kenya. And reflecting on it, I got insane career opportunities that were definitely a result of like this bias. So, you know, at 23, 24 years old, I was running a multi million dollar food delivery operation in Rwanda with a team of 30 people. And then when I went to Uber, I was running a team of 25 people that was doing 250,000 trips a week. And then I started my own business and I was working with founders who were trying to compete against these big international operations like Uber, like Rocket Internet. And a lot of them were just getting crushed, you know? So there really was a conversation around what is the tech ecosystem we want to build across Sub Saharan Africa? And you've seen a real evolution of that. Like now there are multiple billion dollar Nigerian startups. And it was really amazing to be part of that evolution. I think it's a similar conversation to what we're having in co-ops, right? Like who should be the leadership? Like who should be the founders? Like where is the money coming from, you know? And so I think as as that evolution was happening, I was like, okay, you know, this is not, this is not an authentic founder story that I can tell, you know, whereas I feel like with, the driver's Co op, for example, there was like this really authentic founder story behind it, both with my family and with my experience at Uber. So that's okay. Why I just I-
0: want to push on that one more time before yeah. we get to the driver's co op, right? So you graduate summa cum from a good school, you go to McKinsey for a couple of years, right? And this is both before you go and work at, at Jumia and Uber in Rwanda and Kenya. Yeah. Don't you think that those two experiences allowed you to bring a perspective that might not, whether white or you know a local in Kenya or Rwanda? Don't you think those two experiences were pretty unique? That allowed, and it, further, you studied. I think you actually, you know, your studies were on sub-Saharan Africa as well in school. And so, I'm just wondering where this kind of concept comes from, and and wanted to push back one more time
2: on this before we go into Drivers Cooperative. Totally. Can can I interject? Of course. Yeah. But after after she finished his job. Fine. Fine. Go ahead, please.
1: No, I think, I mean, the answer is yes, in terms of a concrete skill set, but it's always like get in, transfer knowledge, get out. So a concrete example of this is when I was at the food delivery company, we would always get these Excel and CSV reports and no one wakes up learning how to do a pivot table in Excel, right? <laughs> no one wakes up knowing that. And so every Friday afternoon, we'd have these like three hour long Excel training classes. So then like head of vendor relations could go through those reports and be like, okay, here are top performing, here are lower performing vendors so that I know who to reach out to and develop relationships with. So I think from a concrete skill set perspective, yes, but it has to be, and I took this same attitude at the co-op, right? It's like, let's take all this fancy education and fancy training, share it with as many people as possible, and then step away.
2: like I think a really much easier, straightforward one for me personally, not speaking for Alyssa here, is that every single week there's a set of white founders using Capital Flight to start a financial fintech company in Sub-Saharan Africa. And my question has always been, what is the ownership structure and where do the returns go? Right. You're coming in from outside, parachuting in with capital rich companies with questionable ownership. And how what is the distribution of that when you exit? Right. This isn't true for all African unicorns, but the substantial amount, I'm not gonna name names because I don't want people to come after us, but you just you follow these channels, it's very obvious. You're like hmm. right. But is the
0: issue is that people are white, or is the issue the ownership distribution?
2: I don't think the whiteness matters so much. I think it's ownership distribution, foreign and not. And I also think capital flight is a real thing. And this only adds to that, right? Like when you look at the capital inflows to sub-Saharan Africa, it's absolutely ridiculous, right? Like over the, I mean, you know this world, I mean, like I don't have to explain this to you, but you know, it's something like 24 to one you know, people are like, oh, there's so much foreign, you know, development capital and all that. But then when you look at the actual distribution of where resources and where products end up from natural resources and what comes into Africa as a result of that, it's very grim. So I was... Yeah, but it's also, I mean, a lot
0: of that FDI, I mean, this is a totally
2: different conversation, so we can button it up after this. But
0: Don't like know. a lot of that FDI is coming from China now,
2: right? And coming oh, yeah, on yeah, yeah. worse, I'm coming on worse terms and from Russia. For a reason. Particularly, yeah. What? For a reason, though, not that China and Russia are saviors, but those people got fucked up by the Western world for the last seventy years, and they're like, "Well, let's see if this is going. to, It's not going to be better." Yeah. <laughs> right? Like uh, I, I mean, I mean, much, much much longer like that, kind of geopolitical
1: conversation. Around, like, does yeah. it matter the people involved? I think it matters about money, right? And ownership is like the big ticket money item, right? That's where you got your billions. But there are also salary conversations, right? Like small ticket money issues, and. You know, based on there were racial pay differentials, you know, to the effect of like three to five to ten x. So I think, like, I yes, there's like a dignity element of it, but I think a lot of times that dignity is reflected in like hard dollars. <laughs> and so I think that's for me really what it came down to is where is the money going, both from like equity perspective and from a salary perspective.
0: Interesting. And so what was the original impetus for wanting to join Drivers Cooperative?
1: So there was no Drivers Cooperative to join. So when I graduated from my MBA, I was actually exploring doing a search fund, which is what I'm doing now. And I was looking into home care companies. And in looking into home care companies, I came across cooperative home care associates in New York City. And looking into it, I was like, this is incredible. And so I actually reached out to a friend from Kenya, who was the CFO of One Acre Fund. And I was sharing this with him because he was checking in on me, you know, like, what are you up to? What are you working on now? And he had said that he had actually been exploring cooperatives for One Acre Fund. And so gave me a whole bunch of materials about like, read this. So then I started sending blind emails to everyone who I could Google in the cooperative space. So I talked to Dowie, Melissa Hoover, I talked to Camille Kerr, and she was the one who connected me with Eric Foreman, who was at the Independent Drivers Guild, and they had been having a course of which my other co-founder, Ken Lewis, participated around how do we save money for drivers? And the idea was that there would be like these cute savings programs, right? Like 20% off gas or, you know, like a free oil change. And all the drivers were like, yeah, that's not what we want. So they were originally going to launch as a franchisee of Canadian cooperative called EVA. Now, when I joined, like, and so then with that connection, you know, Ken, Eric and I are talking every day, they're really... There was like a shell with shell bylaws. And when we talk about bylaws, we can talk about that, which was copied from coffee shop cooperative, but it was a shell, right? There was no money running through the operation. And so when we were talking with Eva, this Canadian cooperative, talk about ownership, I looked at their ownership structure and it was exclusively owned by the two co founders and their father. And so I was uncomfortable. Launching a franchisee of as a cooperative of a privately owned Canadian corporation. And that's when, you know, I'm a fan of literal branding. <laughs> unfortunately, not my string. It was like, okay, the driver's cooperative is what we're going to call this new entity. We're not going to work with Eva in part because we were having issues customizing their application for New York City, right? Like if you go below ninety six, you have to pay a congestion charge by way of example, or, you know, getting the airport tools to work. And in part, because of their ownership structure.
0: Okay. So it's early days. How was ownership and governance set up in the beginning at Drivers Cooperative? Were there different classes? Like what went to team members? What went to the drivers? Were there other people that participated in ownership? Can you just walk us through the capital structure and why you made decisions about how you set up ownership. And I guess associated with that, the governance structure as well.
1: So this is the major regret I have about the driver's cooperative is I didn't pay enough attention to ownership and governance because it was so, I was so focused on like the Herculean lift of operations. And so with the financial profit sharing piece of it, this was something that you know we would talk about in meetings and propose to the board. So maybe it makes sense that I talk about the board first. So these bylaws, which were adopted from the coffee shop cooperative, laid out that there would be seats for management team, seats for riders. Eventually, once we got over 50,000 trips a week or a month, I forget the exact number seats for drivers and seats for independent board members. And those number of seats would scale based on number of trips so that the ratio was always more or less the same. And so the initial board was myself, Eric, who represented management, Ken and Mohammed, who represented drivers, and Steve Slay, who was an independent board member who served on the board of Amalgamated Bank. So that is our initial board from sort of day zero. And we were each assigned different roles. So Eric had filed the incorporation papers two years ago and was de facto president and sort of stated that as such. Ken was vice president. And we decided these roles apart from Eric's at a meeting I was initially supposed to be secretary. And I was like, guys, you can't have the only woman be a secretary. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> and so became, also I was managing the money. So I became treasurer. Muhammad became secretary. And those were the corporate functions. But from a management perspective, it was very much there were three co-managing directors. I did finance and operations. Eric did business development. Ken did driver engagement. And the reason I draw that distinction is because I think as conflict came later, those board designations were seen as authoritative. Whereas I think when we initially had the conversation, they were viewed as a necessary check the box legal designation rather than actually affecting the management of the operation. So that was the initial board. And from a profit Can I just attorney-
0: clarify, I want to make sure that I'm getting this right. So so you and Eric were essentially co-founders, right? And, and but Ken was also a driver or he was only an employee?
1: Ken was a co-founder. He was on every one of those like starting calls and was a co-managing director as well.
0: Okay. But he was not a driver.
1: Ken was a because driver was he also
0: a potential Was he also using the service? I'm just trying to make the distinction. That's what I was trying to understand. Or was he purely operational?
1: So in like the startup way, like if we had a driver fall through, he would take a trip, right? But it was much more like a back office function, like the rest, like Eric and myself, right? And in a pinch, he would do a trip for the cooperative, but it's not like he was on the road driving 90% of the time and would like join a meeting whereas we had other people like our driver board which is purely an advisory capacity apart from individual disciplinary cases right like a client says they were hit or do we deactivate them or not right cuz deactivations are a super hot button issue those were people who were driving 80 to 90% of the time and then contributing in a volunteer capacity to the driver advisory board
0: Okay, but just in terms of the like, if you think about it in terms of a multi-stakeholder cooperative, you have what was Ken's position on the board, driven by being a co-founder. Were Muhammad, it was Muhammad, right? And Ken, were they on the board because they represented drivers?
1: They represented drivers when you thought about like the different seats for the board. But when okay. you say it's a multi-stakeholder cooperative. This is another regret I have, right? We couldn't afford Jason Wiener, unfortunately, at $25,000. And I should have spent that $25,000 because... We were not registered as a LCA multi-stakeholder cooperative.
0: 25 we were- grand. I think I got locked into early rates with Jason.
1: Yeah. He's really, well, he's really
0: milked just, this cooperative man, thing. This, wow.
2: this is the part where we all say, fuck, we should have been lawyers, right? I this, know. This happens this all the time. Like I'm not like in venture as well. I'm just like, how much am I paying this guy this year? Oh my God.
1: <laughs> no, I totally should have been a lawyer. But yeah. So we just kept with like the original... New York worker cooperative that Eric had registered two years ago, a year before, I think it was like a year before we had any money flowing through anything, you know? And so that was limiting in terms of there were not formally different classes of stock. Like I never received any stock of the driver's cooperative. And in terms of the profit sharing, that was purely like I'm still not convinced I'm entitled to profit sharing, to be entirely honest, right? So like the board said, okay, we were sort of in a pinch because we've been saying it's 100% driver owned as a differential in some of the driver orientations. And then when it came time to profit sharing, we were like, whoa, this can't be 100% driver owned because our salary was so not appropriate for the amount of work we were doing. I mean, I've been vocal about this. I made $44,000 cash for the 18 months I was with the driver's cooperative, you know, working an average of 80 hour days. And so with that, it became apparent that there needed to be some profit sharing for the team. And so we ultimately decided on 20% for the team and 10% for Community grants, which was completely theoretical at this point, right? We had no profits to give to community grants. But the idea is that some of the partners that could market to riders, such as like church congregations or different social services organizations, could participate then in this 10% grant program. And then for the profit sharing for drivers, something that I felt strongly is about is I wanted that profit sharing or patronage formula to build the business. I want to be structured in a way that it builds the business. So we developed this formula of, and I wanted it to benefit the people who took early risk versus say, okay, every year we'll calculate your hours and divide by profits. Well, profits are going to go up over time. So the people who were at the beginning, like could lose out. So we said one point per trip, three points per meeting attended. So if you were actively involved in governance, five points per router acquired, 10 points per driver acquired. And then on the team profit sharing, it was straight hours worked. So no difference for any sort of position or wage differential and no like block grants for like founding it by way of example, right? It was pure hours worked, which meant that like, the people who were there early were diluted over time as like the team grew.
0: Okay. So what drove the decision-making around the 20% for the team?
1: There was huge tension on this point. So a lot of it came from background, right? So do you believe that people should be compensated differentially based on position? That is the world I came from, you know, Eric would often advocate for every person according to their means, every person according to their ability. And so that would mean that people who come from lower income backgrounds or are less able to make a higher salary in investor owned businesses would make more. And so that is just a core ideological tension. And then Ken was usually somewhere in the middle, you know, between I come from the super revolutionary background. Like I led revolutions in Grenada, but I'm also in my sixties and like have seen the world. And so would have this. You might have to
0: come back to that revolutions point,
2: but I don't want to distract them. (laughs) Buddy, they, I mean, Eric just dropped like the preamble of something from Marx and Engels with that like distribution of wealth strategy too, right? This is a very interesting.
1: Totally. And so, and like, intentionally so, you know, like, and that was like that core ideological tension was just there throughout the entire cooperative. So 20% at this structure of like flat hours worked was sort of the compromise. And Steve Slay, who was the independent board member kept saying, you know, we have to pay you more, we have to give you more or you'll leave. And I was kind of like, yes, you know, (laughs) And so I think that's a tension within this like profit sharing cooperative structure is how do you compensate people for taking a risk, for investing the time while honoring the intention of the cooperative, which is to be collective and distributive?
0: Okay. And so how did you resolve on 20%? Like you had this board, right, of five people. Like, did Amalgamated, did the independent board members get involved in this decision-making? Was it mostly just you and Eric? Like, how was the initial cap cap table actually structured?
1: No. So Steve is the independent member from Amalgamated, who I referenced. So, and then also Mohammed, right? He's involved. And I remember when we formalized, like, my $72,000 salary, he was like, Alyssa, are you excited about... Your paycheck? I was like, no, but I don't want to sound like a brat, you know? So, in terms of how it was decided, I basically modeled it out, right? I was like, hey, let's model it out in terms of actual dollars at different percentages at different growth trajectories. And so, I think, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think the 20% was like $20,000 per person per year or something, right? And could scale over time, if, I mean, it all depended on the growth trajectory, right? But it was looking at different dollar scenarios of payouts and saying, what seems fair. And if I remember correctly, it seems like what seemed fair seemed to be like $20,000 per person per year, which is how we ended on 20%. But it was based on what were the actual dollar payouts on an annual basis.
0: Okay. So you get you folks were thinking about the profitability of the venture and then backing into so unlike a unlike a growth stage startup, right? So unlike Jumia or unlike Uber, where you would mostly until publicly traded, you would retain those profits. The thought process here is that you're gonna pay out patronage, you're gonna pay out dividends on a on a year by year basis, because that's a, a core component of why you're setting up drivers cooperative, right? And you're backing into what is effectively becomes a bonus for the management team based on these allocations. Is that the way to think about it?
1: Exactly. And I would and, definitely not do it that way again. What okay. I would do in if I were to start another cooperative is I would say, I'm claiming 20% right now, right? I think like when you talk to start that co-op or when you talk to lawyers in the space, that seems to be like a socially acceptable founder share, something in the realm of 10 to 20%. I wouldn't have that diluted by other team members. I'd have a separate ESOP. I would have a separate class of shares. Like I would structure it in that way. And like I said, like I didn't do that and I didn't fight for that hard enough. And that is a regret.
0: Do you think you didn't fight for it because you didn't understand what your motivation was in starting this?
1: I think I understood my motivation. But this is not what I signed up for. I think in our initial sort of brainstorming conversations, I was clear about things like, I want to make six figures, right? And then it became a character judgment later on. So I think I was clear and I think the rules changed. My motivation was always to build wealth for drivers. And it continues to be that, right? It continues to be to even the scales. you know. I woke up to two texts today from a case that I testified for in Kenya that drivers won against these 35% price cuts and that's taken six years, right? That will always be my motivation, but I can't do it in a way that makes me a martyr. And I can't expect other people around me to do it in a way that makes them a martyr in terms of how they're treated, in terms of how they're compensated, and my view is the whole point of the cooperative sector is to lift all boats. It's not to drag people down to the ocean floor, you know, and like, we need to structure it accordingly. That's
2: a really good point. I just wanted to, you know, just add a plus one to it because, you know, one of the things that Martin and I have done pretty early in when we started talking co-ops way back when is that like we have to be able to compete in the marketplace against market capitalist firms on equal terms or this is just going to be a nice little charity side project right like hey we're sharing ownership this is great but like the point is that if we can align governance then and hopefully economics can follow or some mixture of you know both happening at the same time if we're just hoping that people you know do this out of their better nature we're just going to be the we're going to continue to be the little side event
1: Exactly. And it's so interesting, you mentioned that language of project, because that was a tension early on too. you know, people would refer to the driver's cooperative as a project. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not working on a project, right? I am trying to build a business. I'm trying to build a big business, you know, and I think that was another like ideological tension. First entering the cooperative space. This was my first foray into the cooperative space, other than like having a debit card for my mom's credit union. You know, <laughs> like I didn't know what I was doing. And so I think that from like cultural perspective was a massive, massive adjustment for me. And I think when I say I should have fought harder, part of me didn't know what normal was. You know, in the past year, as I've engaged in a divert and like plethora of different cooperatives as I've gotten more engaged in the established cooperative space with food and grocery and rural electric and credit union co-ops. Like I've just learned so much about how they're structured and like, I wish I'd known that at the structuring stage of the driver's cooperative because I was working Like I thought we were developing everything on the fly and I subsequently realized, oh, there's all this precedent that we could have turned to.
0: So just going back to kind of the structuring of the ownership for the founders, right? So you now say I would demand kind of a founder share in the cooperative. Did the board structure in the beginning limit you beyond kind of the the lack of clarity that was there in terms of the roles, the lack of clarity in terms of the structure, was the fact that you had such a minority position a concern as well?
1: In terms of?
0: In terms of your ability to make decisions early on. Like your intentionality in coming to this is, from what I hear, is you want to build wealth for drivers. You want to essentially, there's this, this class of labor that is participating in these platforms that you have experience in from your experiences in in Africa that do not have the ability to participate in the intangible asset creation of kind of these these multi-sided platforms that grow and scale and scope. And so the intentionality is to build wealth. You mentioned that the, the, the governance structure inhibited some of the ability to, or you didn't mention, I guess the question is, did the governance structure and your minority position inhibit the ability for the firm to scale?
1: Scale? Yes, absolutely. Why? So a concrete example is how to accept capital. like Something that I wanted to explore is create a C-Corp Raise venture, have the co-op own 100 percent of the C corp, and structure the governance of the C corp in a way that is cooperative governance, right? Just like write the bylaws, but that would then enable us to raise millions in venture. And was in some talks with some firms that, especially if we implemented like tokenization to it, would write big big checks, you know and That was something that ideologically was not aligned with the rest of the board. It was the idea that, like, no, we're going to be structured as a New York worker cooperative and we are not straying from that. You know, we're not going to sell equity that's not dividend based, by way of example, you know. But I think when we say, like, does it limit your ability to drive drive driver wealth? I think this is where. I acknowledge, like, there's no right or wrong in the fact that Ken and Muhammad are an authentic voice of drivers, right? And so much of this was not just about wealth, it was about power and making sure that this was authentically a driver-led initiative, And that was a massive tension, both at the board level and at the organizational level, sort of to your point around like the McKinsey skill set, right? Of like in tech development, for example, there was a product committee that advised on different features and like how to prioritize the rollout of those features. But then there would also be concerns When driver would suggest like a programming language, and that would be like, no, right? We're not going to use that. And so I think there was at the board level, at the organizational level, this tension between professional experience in a concrete skill set and frontline expertise through years of being on the job. So when you say, like, did the board, inhibit the growth of driver wealth? Like, I don't know. I think it, there was a difference between going deep for a small number of people, both in terms of financial and political empowerment and going broader for a big for a larger swath of people. And I think the board was weighted towards that former category.
0: Interesting. Is there any way that you could have known that before you went in?
1: Yes, I totally should have known that before. (laughs) I think like the ideologies of people, right? The ideologies of individuals were clear as day from the first conversation, you know?
2: You said it yourself kind of with uh, the usage of the term project versus, you know, business company, right? Like you uh, entered, you know some Marxist praxis plus cooperative, which look, I have many friends who are Marxist. It all depends on your flavor of Marxism, but I mean, you got to get shit done at the end of the day, <laughs> right? Like,
1: And I think like, like, I don't want to be like, well, I got everything done and no one got anything else done. Like that was not the reality. You know, I think for example, some of that alternative thinking like created these really creative partnerships that I would not have come up with, you know, like an example was this refinancing deal between the Lower East Side People's Federal Credit Union and the co-op. Like that created, talk about like creating driver of wealth. I mean, we had multiple stories of people saving hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing their vehicle. That is definitely not something I would have done independently because I'm like, it's not in our core business. Like, you know, like I didn't have the relationship with the credit union. But I think in terms of like delegation and letting people lead and the speed of scale and like done is better than perfect, like those were ideologies that I very strongly held that were not shared by the rest of the team. And there were views that they held very, like they held very strongly, such as every decision needs driver input and buy-in. That I didn't agree with, right
0: okay, cool. so let's just stay on this board thing for one more second, right? So so Steve, what did he bring to this first mix? Was he the initial capital? Like how did he get involved as an independent board member? And what sort of dynamic did someone from the finance background bring to these conversations that were were happening between you and Ken and Muhammad and Eric?
1: he had like advised on the project when it was still an Eva stage and had a pre-existing relationship with Eric, which is again, something I would do differently, right? Really think through who are the independent board members that we're bringing on, where are their allegiances. But I think in terms of the perspective that he brought, there was a level of pragmatism, I would say, in terms of things like, you know, I keep bringing up the compensation policy, but that was a big board level decision, you know, and he would also like, I feel like he was an ally in terms of structuring board meetings by way of example. So for instance, I was like, hey, every board meeting, we should pick, you know, four to eight KPIs that we want to anchor to that we want to review. And like, even that was a debate, right? Like, do we use KPIs? (laughs) That was, again, just like different cultural backgrounds. I was like, of course we use KPIs. And then it was like, well, KPIs might be limiting to like our social objectives. And you're like, whoa, I would never think of that, you know? So I feel like Steve was an ally in terms of just how do you structure and run and administer a board meeting from a process perspective? Like, how do you call a vote? How do you second a vote? That sort of thing. And then in terms of the initial capital, so when we did our regulation crowdfunding campaign, you need a lead investor to sort of launch the campaign. And he contributed $50,000, which was not the expectation when he joined the board. But you know, when you're looking for an anchor investor, it made sense to ask him given his board position.
0: Okay. You stay on the board for a while, but I think we can move on to other things. So in terms of tokenization, You mentioned that you would have tokenized this network and that might have unlocked something that you were not able to do through the cooperative structure. You mentioned setting up a Delaware C-Corp, raising money into the Delaware C-Corp, and then having the C-Corp either owned by a trust or a cooperative or, or something. Why would you want to set up that structure? And what would tokenization allow that the traditional cooperative structure didn't?
1: Purely money is why I do it, right? To be able to fundraise more. I think for a consumer ride-hailing company, like you can't bring a knife to a gunfight. You know? And I think cooperative has found its footing with these government transportation contracts. They're all pre-scheduled. You can give a driver a route for a day. You know, you get three clients and you get sort of unlimited trips, three clients being like the MTA, Department of Health, Board of Elections. And I think that's a great fit for the current capitalization The way I think about like the cooperative structure is if you have a private equity type business, then great. You can be a co-op, right? You can get your initial capital through debt. You know exactly what your economics will be. You know when you'll be able to pay back your debt. Do it as a straight co-op. If you're competing against venture or if you're entering into a venture space, then I think these more alternative structures, whether you know, like the C-Corp or the Dow or whatever. It's just making sure that you are able to raise the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of capital that is needed to really establish a presence. So I think a counter to the Drivers Cooperative is Juno, right? Juno had 10% of the consumer ride-hailing market and drivers were promised profit sharing. Now, because they didn't have the governance piece, they sold to a Russian company and dissolved all their profit sharing obligations to drivers. Drivers were hugely burned in that transaction because they didn't have the governance power. But if you coupled Juno you know, with driver governance, I think that could be an incredible story, you know? And from a hard dollars perspective, I think drivers might be making more, you know, in terms of their financial payout. I think that's been inspiring to look at like, you know, the this- Keep stopper's KKR payouts, right? People are making one, two, three X their annual salaries, like versus you look at dividends paid by some worker cooperatives and it's like 10% of their salary, if that, right? And so I think it would be purely from the ability to raise massive volumes of equity capital and to see if, it would lead to a higher absolute dollar payout for members.
0: Walk me through why someone like the, so the structure in and of itself is a problem because from what I hear, from what I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, is the cooperative patronage value is uh, the, the shares are always at par value. Right. And so the tokenization essentially allows for what particular for for the investor, and what do you think that brings in terms of the tension that it creates with the the stakeholders that are labor?
1: Totally. So the biggest problem with cooperative equity is that if you look at the biggest cooperative equity raises, so CHS, the Agricultural Co-op, or Equal Exchange, they're all fixed dividend payouts. On an annual basis. So it actually looks a lot more like debt than equity. So it's like, okay, you'll get 5% every year, you know, or you'll get 7% every year. As an early stage cooperative, A, like, I don't think that's a fair return for the level of risk that people are taking on. And sort of to your earlier point around, like, how do we make these economically competitive rather than charitable projects? And B, the volume of people who are willing to engage in equity like that is lower. So that's actually why when we did the regulation crowdfunding campaign, did it as a revenue share agreement so that there could be greater upside rather than like 5% every year. And then also something I heard from funds was like, well, from a tax perspective, and I by no means understand this, we're going to have to pay some more lawyers to figure this out. If you get an annual payment, rather than a one-time liquidation, that messes up a lot of fund dynamics, right? Of yeah, it's like an
0: installment sale, right? So, or it can be classified as an installment sale. So interesting. Very interesting. And then like like I know I've asked this question twice, but I want to ask it again because I really want to get your opinion on this. What does tokenization accomplish specifically?
1: So on the labor side, frankly, I don't think it accomplishes that much, right? Because well it allows it gives someone within limits the chance to liquidate at any time you know and to have to like choose their payout schedule i think that is an advantage like even like you look at instant pay and like the effect that that's had on drivers like drivers freaking love instant pay you know so this is sort of like in it could be like an equity instant pay you know but when I was considering tokenization, it was far less so from the perspective of what is the advantage to drivers? Because I actually think it like creates a lot of barriers, right? Like I think it's hard to use. I think it's like, I think it has like vibes, you know? Like if anything, I think it's a cost, but the advantage that I saw was unlocking the fundraising capital, which is why I keep referencing back to that.
2: Yeah. I think like maybe another way to put it is, you know, when you have, when you compare the cap table of say a platform cooperative and the tokenomics, you know, pie chart of any, you know, random protocol, they have that, you know, 55% ecosystem or community, you know, community (laughs) allocation. Whereas on the cooperatives, you know, you have your 51%, if you do your LCA or what have you, of uh, member owners, that 51% is like, it's spoken for legally. right? Like you have to be a member owner fulfilling the, you know, this particular definition and your rights are, you know, patronage, et cetera. You can't do anything else with that, right? And that's the thing we've kind of harped on here on the pod a little bit in the past, which is that you, that just is hard to capitalize a business that way. And- if you have your 51%, you're seeing this now in the crypto winter, right? As the people are also dipping into the foundations who manage the, you know, you might have a protocol that has a foundation, and then the foundation gets the entire community and foundation disbursement of tokens and can decide what to do with it. Those foundations are now turning to some of the world's biggest capital allocators and saying, holy shit, please buy some of our tokens, right? I'm not going to name any names here, but it should be very obvious if you look at the top 25 on uncoin market cap.
1: Totally.
2: Yeah. So I guess kind of we can
0: switch gears here. There's so much I want to go into on governance that we haven't covered and it's so much on tokenization we haven't covered. But I guess just coming back to participation from the drivers in the governance, besides Mohammed and Ken, like were you involved at that point where like you moved away from the fact that they were and I understand that that Ken was also kind of an operator, but he was representing the driver's share on the board. Like Were you there for long enough that there was formalization of how other drivers would participate in governance or was that not set up yet?
1: For sure. So there was the board, the board of directors, right, which is what we spent the majority of time talking about. Then there was the driver board. So this was a board that had structural responsibility for any sort of disciplinary action And would decide, are people allowed to drive on behalf of the cooperative or not? So it was more like a jury of your peers, right? Versus at Uber, someone who was sitting in a green light hub, which is like a a front desk help group, (laughs) you know, would decide yes or no, we're cutting off your income. So that was innovation that the driver's cooperative was trying to advance and did advance. That was elected. So originally, it was just sort of whoever joined the meeting. And then like, I want to say like August or September of last year, there was a formal election for 18 positions. And in the bylaws, it stipulates that as well. And it says, I think nine are at large, and then nine are dedicated to different ethnic groups across the city to ensure representation of the different driver community, right? So like, okay, we need some people from South Asia, from West Africa, from Eastern Europe, you know, and there's going to be a couple carved out seats for that. So there was that election. Those were like the formal governance structures. Then there were voluntary boards. And so three voluntary boards, there was the product committee, there was the Rider and Driver Recruitment Committee, and there was the Policy Committee. So these were weekly or biweekly meetings to get driver input and direction across different initiatives. And then lastly, there was a Driver's Fellows Program. So this was a paid position in which people would work about 10 hours a week and contribute to different initiatives like flying at the airport or... Answering telephones or working the dispatch software or things like that.
0: Okay, and if I wanted to get involved in one of the three kind of subcommittee boards, I could just join it. There was yeah, no there, kind was a,
1: there was a form. We would have monthly meetings in which we shared things like KPIs and updates with the members, and then we would distribute via email and text message a form that people could sign up to participate in those committees. And then you'd receive like a text message reminder with the Zoom link.
0: What surprised you about not the governance at the board level, but these other governance structures and how they were implemented and how people responded to them?
1: Well, from a pleasant surprise perspective, pleasantly surprised by like the level of volunteer hours that people were putting in, you know, like there were a couple guys who would just come to every meeting reliably and put in hundreds of unpaid hours building the cooperative from.
0: Just on that point, what do you think motivated them?
1: Some people really hated Uber and Lyft. So like an interesting fact about that is a lot of our drivers had bigger vehicles, right? Like big SUVs, big Suburbans. And those are the people who definitely got the shortest end of the stick because you're spending a ton on vehicle on your vehicle. You're spending a ton on gas. And a lot of times you're doing just normal Uber X rather than XL trips which means you're getting compensated at a super low rate for like a very significant investment. A lot of people had been in the industry for a very long time, right? Like 20, 30 years and had seen its evolution and seen their salaries be slashed. So I think a lot of it was, you know, and or they've been deactivated for something that they considered unfair, you know, like asking someone who was swearing at them to get out of the vehicle. And then all of a sudden Uber deactivates them, right? So a lot of people had these experiences of being deeply wronged, you know? And I think that was a motivator. But then, no, I think there's also like the hope element, right? It's like, hey, like if this works, this could be amazing, you know? I could make more money. Also, I think a lot of people viewed it as like a career change, you know? I think that was another awkward dynamic where people wanted to join like, a software team by way of example right and not be a driver anymore so i think i think there were a lot of those dynamics at play but i think revenge hope and desire for like a life change
0: right but it sounds like when i hear the motivations right there were people who were actually doing a lot of calculating in terms of the profitability of their work right and that was a reason for exit from the main platforms and then at the same time, we're contributing a lot of free labor. So I guess the question is, like, did do you think that the structure of the cooperative actually changed their psychology to one of more deferred gratification? Or was it the voice and participation that was so new and interesting to them that, like, how would you tease out those two?
1: I think it's impossible to tease out the two. I think they're both true, you know? And I think that there was authentic empowerment, you know? And I think that sort of when I was referencing that, like, neither was right or wrong, I think that more leftist grassroots perspective, like, created this sense of, like, really authentic empowerment amongst a small group of people, right? I think there were, like, 20 people who I would put in this category. 20, 25 people who are like regularly contributing to committees. A lot of them were also like just already politically involved, you know. So what I mean by that is, would go to New York Taxi Alliance protests, and we're active within the Independent Drivers Guild, and we're passionate about a Green New Deal, right? Like independent of the cooperative, were extremely politically engaged with both the labor and progressive movements. And this was like another effort in the fight. Interesting. But then I think there was this whole other swath of like hundreds and thousands of drivers that were like, how much are you going to pay me? And when are you going to pay me? And it was much more dollars and cents. Show me the money. Yeah. And like, if this trip doesn't, like I'm on all three, like if you pay me more for a job, I'll do the job with you. And if Uber and Lyft pay me more for a job, then I'll do the job with them. And I'll just keep playing everybody against each other as you should, right? Until I like maximize my income.
0: Interesting. Were there any aspects of contributor involvement besides that, that you mentioned, right? So when I say contributor, I mean, kind of the the drivers themselves at the board level early on where, like that were just negative that you would do differently in the future?
1: Something I would definitely do differently in the future is have member agreements on code of conduct. So something I've been like subsequently vocal about is like that is far and away the most toxic work environment I've ever worked in as a woman. I was like sexually harassed on the regular. I had to have conversations with all of our female employees about if anyone says anything uncomfortable to you, please come to me. When I mentioned inappropriate behavior by a board member, nothing was done about it. Like I was asked if people want me to talk to him and I'm like, I guess I'll talk to him directly. Right. (laughs) Like, but that in terms of like like negative involvement, I think that is, it wasn't so much the involvement, although I wish that we'd have had clear decision matrices, for example. Like, I think my vision was always, you know, People vote for the board, like that is the democratic expression. And then, apart from that, like decisions are delegated to a management team, very much like a credit union or like these large scale cooperatives. Again, I I think there are like different perspectives on that, right? And the drivers' cooperative opted for something that was much more involved, and every decision needed the approval of one of these committees before being rolled out. But yeah, I think having a clear decision matrix that everybody agreed with right from the jump. So it wasn't like we were taking power away from people or giving power to people and a membership agreement with a clear code of conduct about how we're going to treat each other and how we're going to treat other members. So that things like yelling on phone calls was licensed to say, okay, we're booting you out of the Zoom, right? Like this is not appropriate behavior. we signed this in the member agreement. Like this is not the culture we're going to have.
0: Interesting. So like onboarding and offboarding, maybe more thought about kind of how do you become a member and how do you, how do you get rid of someone that doesn't fit the culture when kind of delegated power to different stakeholder groups? So how long were you there for?
1: I was there, like we started working on this like seriously in August, 2020. And then I left Thanksgiving of last year.
0: Okay. So you were there for about 15 months and when did you start to feel like it was time to leave?
1: 2020. No no, 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 I don't think. I, like, honestly. So, in 2021, my best friend had her. She was in remission for three years. Her breast cancer came back in January. She passed away in mid June, and that for me was really like a waking up. And I think everything before that, I was so like all in, so dedicated to the cooperative. But I think, like, not receiving the level of grace that I'd hope for throughout that experience, I think, really started to lead me to a state of just, like, comatose disengagement, you know, where...
0: A level um, of, sorry, a level of grace, is that what you used?
1: Yeah, yeah, like, I, so I think I started to feel like, okay, I have sacrificed a lot, I have given a lot for this co-op, and then when I need, like some time off or when I label appendix a appendix B, you know, like cut me some slack you know <laughs> And like with such in such a state of grief and just needing to take some time and not being given that just made me feel like this is I want a cooperative to show like a better way of doing things like a better culture, a better, like a more compassionate culture, right? Like that is why we're supposed to be doing cooperatives. And when I received the exact opposite of that, I just, I couldn't keep justifying these sacrifices to myself as much as I wanted the vision to realize itself.
0: And do you think the experience made you change your perspective on whether or not you would actually set up a cooperative again? Absolutely. Would you set one up again?
1: So this is something I've really like been in deep reflection on over the past year because I think my view of cooperatives is sort of like that quote about democracy of like, it's the best of the worst. (laughs) And I would do it again, but I would do it with a lot more protections. I will not do it unpaid again. And I would hire slowly rather than build a coalition of the willing.
0: Interesting. Okay, cool. So what else did, were you kind of coming into this that you thought we would ask about that we haven't or we should know about the experience?
1: Well, I think where the business ended up is really important. You know, like consumer ride hailing did not work. You know, and when I talk about capital, something I always say is like, well, when we launch a new market in Uber or at Rocket, people are paid a guaranteed hourly incentive like let's say $27 to just be online and accept trips. You have to accept 90% of trips that come in. That is what allows you to build this flywheel effect within ride hailing to say, okay, you know, there's riders know there's going to be a driver available, so then you're going to get more and more trip requests and then your obligation from an hourly guarantee perspective is going to be replaced by riders actually paying for a fare. And that is something that did not work within the cooperative because A, we didn't have the funds to pay the hourly guarantee. And B, like this idea of ownership wasn't compelling enough for people to turn down trips with Uber and Lyft. However, I think the government transportation contract route for access ride, for Medicaid non emergency medical transportation, for get out the boat transportation is an amazing fit for this cooperative model because you're not reliant on this real-time, real-place marketplace. And instead you're saying, okay, like we have these contracts, we'll fill up your day. You will make more money than if you're just like sitting around waiting for one-off requests. And I'm just really grateful that path has realized itself. And I didn't leave until we'd signed at least one accessorite contract. Right. I was like, I want to make sure that when I leave, there's at least a path to like making real money as a cooperative. And I think that's realized itself where I'm at right now is like, how do we build the next generation of billion dollar co-ops, right? Like they exist, they exist all over the place, you know, There's over a hundred, but they are in these very specific sectors. How do we move beyond these very specific sectors where we've seen co-op success, realize that same success outside of food, agriculture, and grocery, energy, and finance?
2: Actually, that would be a great question to turn around to you, right? Like after you just went through like, oh, how would I do this differently? Oh, that and the other. If you were going to... You know, start one. What do you think are the sectors that we really need to experiment in with shared ownership and governance?
1: Here, I want to see a billion dollar home care co op. Like, I want to see that so badly. I think to the point around like private equity economics, I think it makes sense. Like, we know exactly what we're getting. And something that I would love to see happen is we buy a home care company with the license for both like traditional agency-based and consumer-directed care. It has a bunch of like managed care organization contracts and existing state contract. Because that was the other thing when you're starting from scratch. I mean, we waited so long for licenses from the Taxi Limousine Commission in the city, from the Department of Health at the state level. You know, so like buy a company with the licenses and like grow it from there. I think there's massive potential there. I've also heard a lot of appetite for childcare, but I think that's a little harder because you don't have like that referral network unless it's employer affiliated, right? Like, can we create a massive childcare network so that every credit union's employees has an affordable place to send their kids, right? And I think there's real potential for the established cooperatives to leverage their customer bases. I mean, we touch the cooperative sector touches millions of people every single day. Like, let's leverage that to have guaranteed customers for future co-ops that we want to launch in facilities management. And but I think it's all these like, I think it's all the private equity sectors, right? The private equity sectors with 10 to 15% EBITDA, super fragmented industries. Like I would not start against two. Venture back behemoths again, which everyone said, you know, but you gotta give it a try. You like, <laughs> you know, you gotta shoot your shot. But I think fragmented industries, solid EBITDA margins, labor-based services businesses is like where we can have billion dollar cooperatives.
0: It's really interesting because you kind of backed into an answer to the question earlier on tokenization and what it actually solves when you answered like. Uh, what, how Uber and Jumia, and Jumia actually go into the market, they they essentially stimulate demand, right? They guarantee demand, and that's what you figured out with drivers cooperative. You got the government to guarantee demand, right? So it's the same mechanism; it was just a different buyer. One was kind of institutional investors, the other was the government, but both were required to get the flywheel going. So, really interesting.
1: What do you guys? What do you think in terms of where there's opportunity in the future?
0: The whole field has made me a. Uh, a hyper-capitalist and I just want to make as much money as possible and screw over people and I don't care. And this podcast just contributes. <laughs> Every week I come on and I just, I
2: just,
0: no. no, no, I think the honest answer is, well, John, you go first and then I'll answer.
2: Well, really? Okay, fine. I think that well, one, I did want to say before I give an answer to you, you know, there is going to be, I don't know if you're aware of it, Alyssa, but there is a group Teleport that just raised $9 million in a seed round led by Foundation Capital to tokenize transportation networks and on Solana. So that that is actually happening. And their alpha launch or beta launch, I think, is happening at Art Basel, Miami either as we speak or very soon. So we get to see a crypto company, you know, fuck it up too. Let's see how let's who we learn from that <laughs> one as well. Right. And then like in terms of, you know, I don't really have a specific intelligent answer like I'm sure Martin is gonna have, but I think that I think, you know, my experience at say savvy, it really showed me that like that one, You know, I've talked. Jen was on the show, and we talked about this as well. I think that is a company that can really benefit from tokenization, just because of the number of issues you pointed out. Capitalization of that company to enable its growth is like they're they're killing it. I can't share the numbers, but they're just a fantastic business. And if you looked at how much money they have raised, it's just amazing (laughs) what they've been able to do. So I'm what why I'm why I'm piping them up is I think that anything that has how I would answer this question, really, I have to do some research is just to say, what are the sort of networks that share that sort of stakeholder base and the revenue metrics that kind of are downstream of them that you can then coordinate in a more efficient way with a tokenized network? And the more efficient is really the thing where you have to do your homework and say, what does efficiency look like in this network? Right? So I can't point to a specific one. That's just how I would go about answering that question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Jen was incredible. She was the first person I talked to to understand co-op equity. I was like, I feel like I'm missing something. And she was like, you are, here's how it works.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We had her on. She was great. It makes me think that, Jod, we should figure out how to tokenize that network, but longer conversation. Yeah. My biggest concern is that I definitely see the, so in all seriousness, like like you, like my values are aligned with the social solidarity economy, but the case studies that come out of it are frustrating in terms of whether or not they're competitive, and I think that's that's where Jod and I really vibed in our first conversations a couple of years ago. And so the 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 thing that I'm most concerned about is kind of generalizable AI and who owns assets over time. And so I can see a lot of this working in most skilled labor marketplaces, but I actually think that's less interesting over time because what's going to happen is more and more we're going to commoditize our minds and a small group of the, a small kind of proportion of the of of the population is going to own the machines, right? And to the extent that we don't participate in that ownership and participate in that governance, um, even people like us on this call that went to top schools, that have great jobs, are, we're our negotiating power is actually going to become commoditized over time. And maybe we were lucky enough to live in a moment of time where we didn't have to worry about that. But to the extent that you have kids that are under the age of 10, they're going to have to worry about that. And so... You know, can read books like Superintelligence and kind of the economics of how this might play out if we don't figure this out. But I do think we need to think about how do capital-intensive industries and high-growth industries and industries of network effects accommodate for user participation and user ownership. And I think that's what crypto and tokenomics really enables. And unfortunately, you know, SBF has set all of us back a couple of years. But I think that's what's going to continue to continue to grow and become more and more important as part of kind of driving this competition narrative or driving ventures that can be cooperative, but have the values of the social solidarity economy.
1: Interesting. Have you read Ministry for the Future? No. Well, I'd recommend it because they talk about basically this cooperative social network, which then tracks all financial flows all over the world. And so people can't have like Swiss bank account anymore. It's it's a good read.
2: It's (laughs) a good read. For intelligence. It's a substantial part of what I'm investing in out of cerulean in the natural asset economy. So, like, even though Kim Stanley Robinson hates crypto now, but if you talk to him and you talk to Delton Chen, who he based a lot of what he wrote on Delton Chen's idea for the global carbon reward, which i'll it in the show notes. That became a big part of what he wrote about and the ability to own. Like, you know, there are people across the world who steward natural resources for absolutely zero dollars, right? And so, like, making the contributions that come from that as inputs to the economy legible and ownable, I think I totally, that's a super good point. <laughs> like, that's kind of where it, where it comes from.
0: Cool. Well, if people want to follow you online, so where can they do so? Are you online or you, have you kind of taken this experience and, you know, you're, you're sheltering? Uh, hey, what's dark. happening? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, I I really have taken time to like do my yoga, spend time with family and friends. And I, I want to be less of public voice and more of a public example. So when I'm doing something next, hopefully people will hear about it, but no, shrunk online presence.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Great answer. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it.